Welcome to the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Reminger Co. LPA is a full-service law firm with over 150 lawyers spread across 14 offices and serving states throughout the Midwest. My name is Zach Pyers, and I'm a partner in Reminger's Columbus, Ohio office. I'm also an adjunct faculty member at Capital University Law School, teaching a number of courses in litigation, including a course recently offered in ride-sharing and autonomous vehicle liability. And I also happen to be one of the co-authors of a recent book published by the American Bar Association on ride-sharing law and liability. And I'm Kenton Steele. I'm an associate in Reminger's Columbus, Ohio office. And along with Zach, I uh, am a adjunct faculty member at Capital University Law School, teaching a course in ride-sharing and autonomous vehicle litigation. And I'm one of Zach's co-authors on the book on ride-sharing and autonomous vehicle litigation and liability that was recently published by the ABA. This podcast on emerging technologies will examine how changes in technology and business models affects our daily lives and how the law is adapting to respond to these changes. Exponential technological advances in the last two decades have transformed how we travel, how we do business, and how we communicate. Nearly every part of our daily lives are evolving and changing to incorporate the benefits offered by these new technologies. And while in many ways these new technologies offer convenience, they can also create uncertainty. For instance, how does using an in-home smart speaker impact one's privacy rights? Are ride-sharing services safe? Who is responsible if I buy a defective product from an online retailer? Are cryptocurrencies the wave of the future or a passing fad? This podcast will explore these questions and others related to emerging technologies and will offer insight into how the law is responding to the new issues arising in our increasingly technologically advanced world. On today's podcast, we'll be continuing our discussion on ride-sharing. And while most of us are, to some degree or another, familiar with ride-sharing, This podcast is going to provide an in-depth look into ride-sharing, its origins, how this type of business operates, and how the law has adapted and responded to ride-sharing. And on today's podcast, we'll be specifically discussing uh, the incredible rise in popularity that we've seen with ride-sharing, where, you know, as as recently as uh, five or ten years ago, ride-sharing was really a, a novelty that most people were not familiar with to today where it's, it's extremely prevalent. Almost everyone has heard of or used ride sharing. Um, so Zach, can you please tell us a little bit about this incredible rise in popularity that we've seen with ride sharing? Sure. And so I think it's helpful, right? For us, when we start talking about ride sharing to think about it in a more historical context, at least here in the United States, there's, there's no surprise that Americans have, historically speaking, have had a love for the automobile. And so when we start talking about, you know, the rise of ride sharing, we start talking really, it's really interplayed um, and intertwined with this concept of Americans' love of the automobile. And so when you look at it, it actually started when we dig dig back with back into the early 1900s. And so we see this um, 
the rise of or the start of ride sharing actually with the introduction of Henry Ford's Model T. Now, without going into an in-depth discussion about the history of the automobile industry, which is a whole other topic that we could discuss on a whole other podcast, the Model T was really the first mass-produced automobile which used an assembly line um, to create these automobiles. And so it, it did really two things. One, it allowed for these vehicles to be mass-produced. But number two, it allowed them to be sold at a, at a, a more reasonable value, right? The, the goal was to sell these vehicles to the average person and to make them more accessible to a person on a living wage rather than simply as a luxury. And so what happened during this time frame is we saw an explosion um, in the area as it relates to automobiles on the road. So between 1914 and 1918, what we saw, obviously, from a historical perspective is we saw the United States enter World War One, And so you start to see... Um, you start to see with the outbreak of World War One, you start to see a recession occur. And during this time, we saw what was called the Jitney Craze. And so entrepreneurial-type-minded people who owned a Model T were starting to utilize them to transport people on streetcar tracks. And so they would run the same lines as the streetcars, charging the same cost as the streetcars, but sometimes going twice as fast, right? And we can all see the benefit of that. Get somewhere for the same price, but in half the time. And so during approximately a five-year period of time, we saw these entrepreneurial-minded people utilizing their cars as a service um, to make money. Now, there were certainly lots of issues um, from a safety perspective. For most people who know anything about Model Ts know that they didn't have safety belts or airbags or any of the modern safety features that our cars today have. Um, so they, they definitely posed some um, you know, issues as it related to the safety of their riders. But there was also you know, competition on the road among other uh, Jitney Craze drivers and also from the streetcars that were operating in and about the, the facilities. And so uh, we started to see that this, um, we started to see that this kind of died off after about five years, but it really was kind of the, the first kind of ride sharing program in the United States. And so sometimes when we think and we talk about ride sharing, I think that the general natural inclination is to think of them in the context of we know them today as companies called Uber and Lyft. Um, but really what we're talking about is a much broader concept, right? And so Kenton and I might use those terms interchangeably, but really sometimes you hear the technical term transportation network company, which really refers to Uber and Lyft from a legal perspective, right? Most of the regulators and um, the regulations uh, we'll talk about transportation network companies or T and C's. Now, again, I know we'll use the term ride sharing because it's the colloquial term, but when you think about ride sharing from a historical perspective, it really is, it can really encompasses carpooling, um, and stuff like the Jitney craze that was going on back in the early 1900s. And so one of the other periods in our history where you also start to see a push for this ride sharing, it, more in the form of, of carpooling and commuting carpoolers, 
is during World War II, right? We start to see signs that are urging us to do our patriotic duty, to share a ride, join a car-sharing club, um, to save on gas so that our troops overseas can use it. And all of these sort of kind of pushes from an advertising standpoint to really encourage um, carpooling. And so that's probably the next historic phase, you know, and it's interesting, right? Because when you looked at the first kind of car sharing phase, and we talked about the rise of the chitney craze, it was triggered by an economic recession, followed by World War II, which also was involved with an economic recession um, or, or the Great Depression. And so we see economic times being called on people to kind of, you know, do their part, um, you know, and, and help to save this money. Now, the next kind of big push that we see this happening is the energy crisis of the 1970s. And during this time, we see another big push in the United States to kind of encourage ride sharing, you know, in, in the form of carpools, um, to kind of help the country out from a from a financial perspective, but also from an energy uh, security perspective. Now, on the last uh, episode of the podcast, we, we talked about historically the context of the internet being used to match rideshare drivers and passengers and how that was really introduced in the 1990s. We see this technology advancing the ball on this till we get to the transportation network companies that we're discussing today. And so when we look at the share of the market that is currently held by these companies, we start to see in the modern context that they've, they've, really, um, they've really captured a lot of people. And now I'm going to talk about in a, in a later episode the impacts of COVID-19 and the global pandemic on ride-sharing companies. But when we look pre-pandemic numbers to give some idea as to how often this was being used, we look at some of these numbers that I'll throw out just to give you some idea of the prevalence. And so 75 million Uber riders um, were utilizing their service in 2018. We had something like 48 million U.S. adults were projected to use to have used Uber in 2018. And in the United States, there was something like 3 million Uber drivers um, on a daily basis. Now, when you start to kind of give some context to the amount of cash flow and, and um, revenue that we're talking about, when we look at just the tips that were earned by Uber drivers, right? And, and for a lot of people who have been using these services for a long period of time know Uber first, when it rolled out, did not allow tips to drivers. And then there was some discussion and then they, they started allowing it. The first year tips were allowed, $600 million in tips was, was given to Uber drivers. There was something like 10 billion rides taken in an Uber car uh, up in, in 2000, by, uh, by 2018. We see that the average number of daily Uber trips globally in 2018 was like 15 million. Um, and we see that um, the number of Uber rides in 2017 alone was something like 17 billion. 
And so we start to see that they have a very, very large um, presence and kind of a very, very large um, scope. Now, the other thing, and this is a, a projection, and, and obviously we'll, we'll see how this looks, um, but there was a projection that the ride-sharing market as a whole by 2025 was projected to reach $218 billion. And so there's no doubt or question that there is a huge prevalence um, that has led to the rise of popularity of ride-sharing. In <clears throat> turning to uh, sort of some of the specific things that, that led us here, I think there are, or are interesting changes that we uh, have seen that make ride-sharing a more attractive alternative than it has been otherwise. Um, one of those things that um, there's been a trend towards that is related to the prevalence of ride-sharing or, or makes it um, something that people are more inclined to use is lower uh, rates of ownership of personal vehicles. Can you tell us a little bit, uh, Zach, about how that lower ownership rate relates to a rise in the popularity of ride-sharing? Yeah, absolutely. And so what we've seen is a number of kind of things happen, right? We've seen situations in which two family or two car families have gone down to one car. So, you know, you, you have a couple, maybe they have some kids. And instead of having two cars, which may have been the historical um, norm, now we see people going down to one car where they have a family car to transport everybody, but now maybe one of the adults uses um, a ride-sharing company to commute to and from work. Because, frankly, the cost of parking every day is roughly the same cost as use, using you know, one of these ride-sharing companies. And so we've seen the vehicle ownership kind of tumble. We've also seen, frankly, that there are some people who are holding on to cars longer because they're just not using them as much. And so we see you know, the, the frequency of which some cars are being purchased has declined in some um, demographics. We've also seen a push you know, pre-pandemic um, back into some of the urban centers, which has also led to the popularity of ride-sharing and the decline in ownership of personal vehicles among some demographics. Now, again, uh, we still see, and most people know that, you know, Personal vehicle ownership is still in a really high number, especially in the United States. Um, but we do see overall that this is one of the alluring factors. Um, and in the future, they, analysts have continued to project that we will see more and more people giving up their cars in a, from a personal standpoint in, in, in exchange for um, ride-sharing companies. One of the uh, other issues, and I think this is something that we will see repeatedly in discussions of emerging technologies, um, is, is this term of uh, a disruptive technology where um, the world is sort of not prepared for that kind of um, business model. And one of the things that um, is typically pointed to as an explanation for how ride-sharing got so big so fast is that ride-sharing companies did not face the same regulatory hurdles that the traditional um, transportation services companies face, like taxis or traditional car services. So, Zach, can you tell us a little bit about how that difference uh, in regulatory hurdles 
uh, helped fuel the rise of ride sharing? Sure. I think this is one of those things where it's, you know, you ask for forgiveness rather than ask for permission. And so a lot of times in a lot of these markets, we've seen these technologies and it's, and it's not limited just to ride sharing as you kind of noted. But, it, but especially in ride-sharing, they were entering a lot of these markets before they had the green light from regulators. And part of the benefit of doing that, right, is you become established in the markets much faster. And once you're in these markets, it's a little bit harder to get you out, right, especially if you've got a consumer base who wants to keep you. And so what we've seen is that one of the reasons that these companies were able to rise in popularity so quickly is because they entered really kind of before regulations were well established, but then also the regulations that do exist, and once they are established, frankly, and in most cases, but not all, tend to be a little less burdensome than you would find in the traditional taxi cab industry. And so what we've seen is that these ride-sharing um, the entry to start offering these services for like a ride-sharing driver is not as burdensome as if they were to become a taxi cab driver. And so what we've seen is that that has allowed them to grow, the companies to grow, and essentially become more popular. Now, Zach, one of the things you mentioned there was a low barrier uh, to entry to becoming a ride-sharing driver. Uh, obviously, with a, if you're going to drive for a ride-sharing service, it, there's not a taxi medallion that has to be obtained to start that process. So can you tell us a little bit about how those low barriers to entry uh, for both drivers and passengers um, play into the popularity of ride-sharing? So this is one of the issues really that helps to drive the gig economy in general. And, and I know we maybe not haven't spent a lot of time so far, but I know we will in this series. We'll be exploring the gig economy in, in much greater detail. But one of the things, obviously, that you need in the ride-sharing context is you need a rider, right, a customer, and you need a driver. And so... When we talked about the obtaining a taxi medallion and, you know, driving for a taxi company, there is a higher barrier, right? It's a little bit more tedious and onerous of a process to get the medallion and then to drive that taxi cab than you would find in the ride-sharing context. And so what we've seen is that by having those lower barriers, the what we've seen is that there's more drivers who are able to offer their services in the gig economy on these ride-sharing platforms. And so that has also helped to fuel the popularity of the platforms and the services. That, that certainly makes sense, Zach. It's a basic supply and demand. And both when it's easier for both of those to go up, uh, that's when a business grows very rapidly. Uh, one of the other factors that I think we uh, have, have maybe kind of touched on or alluded to here is that the difference between the ride-sharing companies we see today and former uh, iterations of ride-sharing from history is that uh, there are technological advances that are used to facilitate this process. And one of the terms that comes up a lot, right, is big data um, and how that's used to um, leverage the the position of the business to to continue to grow. So can you please tell us a little bit about 
how uh, smartphone or how ride sharing companies are using data to continue to fuel their rise in popularity. So it probably comes as no surprise to most of our listeners that companies today collect a lot of data. And ride-sharing companies and other technology companies who are kind of in the gig economy workspace, they are all collecting a lot of data, right? And the goal of collecting that data is really to make uh, uh, their businesses more efficient and to offer better services and, frankly, to make more money. And so what we've seen is that they start collecting data on a lot of stuff. They collect it on how often people use their services, on where they're often picked up, on, you know, what locations may be very popular. For example, you know, Kenton and I are located here in Columbus, Ohio, you know, pre-pandemic and hopefully at some point in time post-pandemic, you know, Ohio State Buckeye football games are very popular events. You have over 100,000 people at times attending those events. And I'll tell you that when those events end, there are a lot of Uber drivers and Uber passengers trying to match to get back to their cars or their homes or to their friends. And so they utilize this data to kind of help place and match the riders and the drivers, right? Because they know these events are going to happen. They see the demand coming and they help to predict it, right? So they start to steer drivers closer to the area, but it also affects pricing, right? At times, if it's supply and demand, as Kenton alluded to from, you know, basic economics. And so what we see is that when the demand is high, sometimes the prices are high, especially if the supply of drivers is low. And so we've seen them start to utilize this technology in a lot of areas, um, and, and we'll be talking about kind of the data in greater detail in later episodes, especially when we talk about is the data being kept safe? Um, And what data are they actually collecting? But they're certainly utilizing it to help to drive and create better services and thereby making them more popular. So with a a sort of better understanding of of what ride sharing is as we understand it today and how we got here, I think that leads to the, the next question, which is what is the impact that ride sharing and its increase in popularity has had on broader issues related to transportation. Yeah, so this is kind of a mixed bag when we talk about the the kind of the broader transportation issues. There's certainly been some huge benefits when it comes to ride sharing, right? From an individual perspective, maybe I don't have to have two cars in my family. Uh, you know, I, I can go to and from a restaurant and have a glass or two of wine with dinner without having to worry about uh, finding a ride home because I took an Uber to the restaurant and now I'm taking an Uber home from the restaurant. But we also start to see that there would been projections when these companies entered various markets and cities that the congestion was going to go down. And the prediction was is that if you pull the individual cars off the road, that we start to see less vehicles being driven and parked on on the streets and in the garages. And frankly, what we've seen actually is that in a lot of major cities, the traffic has actually gone up, that these cars, 
that are being operated by these uh, ride-sharing companies are actually on the road more. And that more people are taking rides where they would have in the past either walked um, or taken a public transportation. And so there are actually more vehicles on the road, that the roads are actually more congested. And some people have argued that they actually can potentially be causing more accidents. And so from a statistical standpoint, we start to kind of see in some of these instances it be a mixed bag. Um, but honestly, it's, you know, it's still, these models are still working themselves out. And so the, you know, the long-term impact on these as, as we kind of transition as a society is still kind of yet to be known. That'll conclude our discussion for today. And thank you for joining us on the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Please be sure to join us next time where we'll be continuing our discussion of ride sharing and diving into what we predict for the future of ride sharing and how these technologies are going to continue to grow and develop. Mm-hmm.